beings are beautiful, messy, extraordinary constellations of so many factors which makes us what we are. If we can accept that as clinicians and that wherever we start is a fair start point, but we don't have to become attached to it. If we can remember to tell less and ask more. If we can hold that space to allow emotions to come and know that that's okay. And if we can be kinder and less judgmental of ourselves, then the process can continue to unfold in a forward direction with you and the patient collaborating in that process. Welcome to the Biology of Business, where we answer the big question, how can healthcare professionals like us, who haven't sold out to the pharmaceutical industry and are spending money from our own pockets, how can we market and communicate our services, our expertise and all the things we believe in? so that they reach the world and the people we wish to serve, yet still remain profitable? That's the question this podcast aims to answer, and I'll be sharing with you the anatomy and physiology of a business so that you can apply your clinical reasoning to your business reasoning and create healthy, sustainable and impactful clinics. I hope you enjoy listening and subscribe. Hello, welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate, and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Joanne Elphinston. Good afternoon and welcome, Jo. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Kate. It's a delight to be here. Oh, so you've just been on a half a tour of the world since we last spoke. You've come back from Australia through some tropical tropical islands. Oh, yes. And boy, am I feeling it today in chilly Wales. Um, they're very tempted to get my bag and just get back on the plane again. Was it Bali you stopped off? I did. Yes, yeah. first time. I have a friend who decided that retirement in a in an apartment in Sweden didn't really take it take her, and so she's uh, reinvented a whole life in Bali. So I was interested to see what that looked like. Oh, wonderful! So welcome, Joe. Joe, you have a practice based in Cardiff, but you're originally uh, from Australia, and I believe you trained in Australia. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, many many years ago, I I trained at uh, University of Queensland and started my my clinical career there and uh, I swiftly decided that it was time to travel. So I, I then spent the next five years in a private practice in Hawaii, in, in mm-hmm. Honolulu, uh, which was an amazing experience before I uh, decided to pack my bags and come to the UK. So did you ever work in the NHS in the UK? Have you always worked independently? No, no. I arrived into, uh, I, I worked actually at uh, Cardiff Royal Infirmary while I was doing my master's I was doing a master's in philosophy of music at Cardiff University and uh, and doing half time at uh, at the CRI in the NHS and I worked in the chronic pain service in uh, in the Valindra NHS Trust here in Cardiff as well. So what was your journey to setting up your own practice, Joanne? Ah, there's a great question, Kate. It's been a bit of an unconventional one. Um, I think, well, the first thing I can share is that after five six years of practice, I was thoroughly burned out. So I was still in my 20s and thought, you know, I I can't do this anymore. I was working in the States. I was seeing 20 patients a day. 
Uh, I was managing that clinic and I was fried. I thought I don't have anything else to give. Mm. So I uh, I booked a holiday to come to Europe with a friend and then I realised I didn't have to come back. So <laughs> I um, I logged into, into the UK, found this master's that intrigued me and it was after having been accepted for various masters in more conventional subjects, I had written down this list of bizarre things that didn't seem to be related. But if I wanted to study and find some joy in it, this was what they would be. And it was philosophy and music and Italian and all these seemingly unrelated things. And then I, I opened the Guardian newspaper and there on a page was an advertisement for the, the very first multidisciplinary experimental masters and it had every single thing that was on my list which is quite amazing you know so so that brought me to Cardiff working in the NHS to pay the bills and then it was the masters it was the philosophy that then opened the doors for me because my training up until that point in physiotherapy was learning this is how things are. Mm. And then I had the benefit of the most wonderful professor of philosophy. And I had no idea that he was so eminent. I just knew he was this, this little man who just blew my mind. And, and he really opened the doors for me to say, listen, you know, when you have a hypothesis and you can defend it, then you've got something. There's something there. Mm -hmm. and that actually gave me permission to start to and just to consider sharing some of the ideas and experiences that have been bouncing around for me mm -hmm. so uh, so there I was uh, in Cardiff Royal Infirmary, Infirmary doing secret in-services um, because uh, the department was very McKenzie based and although I'd been hired to to you know, do something with the skill mix, the resistance was massive. And so uh, teaching or sharing ideas like normal movement, which normal movement actually was in a little box done by newly qualified physiotherapists for neuro. You know, what is normal movement? You probably did the course yourself, Kate, you know, many years ago. That's what everybody did. So everyone thought that was a neuro course that you did as a new grad. And I'm coming along going, but hang on a minute, normal movement, something we all do. And apparently that was a very subversive idea. Uh, so I would have these secret in-services to teach about movement. And it's I think this generation will not believe that that was necessary. But back then, it was McKenzie. Syriacs, Maitland. And people said, well, which one are you? I don't understand the question. What do you mean, which one am I? Um, I'm a whatever works for that patient therapist. Um, so that then made me think about the possibility of sharing some of these movement ideas in a profession that wasn't interested in movement, which is pretty amazing to think about that. Uh, physical therapists, physiotherapists, physical therapists were not interested in movement. No, you could not interest anybody in coming on a movement course. So that's why I kind of lured them subversively with these big inflatable balls, you know, which 
up until that point were also to be found kind of dusty and mostly deflated in a corner of a neurogym. Um, and so bringing them out, people were interested in learning about the piece of equipment. But what was happening was actually I was teaching them dynamical systems theory and functional anatomy and normal movement. And occasionally, a, quite an intelligent person would say at the end, this was never really about balls, was it? I'm like, no, no, it really wasn't. But it was a way to get you on the course. Mm-hmm. So it all had to happen. So it gave you an opportunity to develop your concept and test it out and test out not just the concept, but how to communicate the concept too. Indeed. Indeed. And and also gave me the opportunity to come to know the situation of physiotherapists all around the country. Mm-hmm. Because I traveled prolifically all over the country and it gave me a very unique insight into what was happening in different trusts. So um, once you just go backtrack a set, so once you sort of developed your program in Cardiff, you then were recognizing, hang on, there's an opportunity for me to deliver this concept or a need as well for me to deliver this concept elsewhere. Mm, absolutely. Okay. I remember my very first ad in Frontline magazine, um, which was basically saying, if if you're interested in this idea of, of your patients moving um, and taking a more holistic approach to that, then come walk with me and let's see what we can do together. And it started mm-hmm. off as a day and then it gradually expanded and it kept growing and growing and people started to talk to each other because pretty much it's been a word of mouth operation all the way along. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it really, it really proliferated. I have to give a, an absolute um, shout out to Scotland because actually, as early adopters, it was it was people in Scotland that really, really went for it. So I taught a lot up there in different parts of, of the country, um, and gradually, of course, it started to spread in different parts of the UK. And of course, um, I've had that long, long relationship in Sweden. So you were describing that you had this very unique insight into because you were going to the you were going to the trusts to deliver your course rather than having everybody come to you in Cardiff mm, mm. which gave you an insight into people all over the country and how the working environments all over the country absolutely and and you would get impressions of many dynamics so for example the interdepartmental dynamics would be so interesting because you there's a huge difference between a course where nobody knew anybody and courses where we have people at multiple different levels uh, within a department and those were actually much more challenging because mm. creating a safe space mm. in that situation where certain mm. people had seniority so they had something to defend. So it's difficult for them to be vulnerable, to learn mm. something, and difficult for the less experienced staff mm. uh, as well. And so it was a great training ground for me in how to really, really create safe learning environments for people to feel that they can, because we can't learn if we're not prepared to be vulnerable, because learning absolutely requires uncertainty. Mm. Stepping into something mm. that isn't the known and and that's scary. And so did and then somebody in Sweden presumably picked up on what you were doing, which is what led you to running courses there. Yeah, that was that was a simul- two simultaneous things happened. So one was that uh, there was somebody who wanted to bring in international speakers, and her husband worked at very high up in professional football. And she'd said to him, "When you're in the UK at such and such a club, 
ask them for recommendations and they Mm. were kind enough to recommend me because they'd just done a course with me Mm. and at the same time Sisu which is the main publisher of sports books in in Sweden had actually identified my very early book bless Mm. it the core workout um, from back in the 1990s and they wanted to translate that into Mm. Swedish and so those things happened simultaneously Mm. so the whole thing kind of exploded suddenly back in 2003 in uh, in Sweden and I've had this wonderful relationship with Sweden ever since. So Phil was explaining last week that um, she did a review of Robin McKenzie's Against the Tide book and she was describing as the same similarity in terms of having a concept that you just know your idea needs to be expanded mm. but a frustration in communication or how to help other people understand and he would go home if it hadn't quite communicated it back to New Zealand and build brick walls apparently was what I what <laughs> Phil was describing last week <laughs> have you had those moments where you've been exasperated that you can't quite get your message resonating as you want and gone back and built a brick wall in your back garden or <laughs> equivalent <laughs> yeah you know I so relate to that I, I really do because it's been it's pretty much been like that all the way along um everything at every stage has been just slightly counter to the narratives that were happening at the time so at a time when people were very invested in um, becoming specialist in a certain uh, technique or a certain philosophy I was coming along and saying oh but it's a web and look at all of these other possibilities and nobody wanted to know about that Mm -hmm. Um, and then we kind of went on and and things moved forward which was terrific and then we got to people starting to talk about functional movement I thought brilliant and then that turned into very prescriptive forms of movement Mm -hmm. um, and trying to nail things down Um, and then we move on again and with you know introducing the absolutely critical element of emotion mm-hmm. and people are like oh that's not our scope of practice I'm like I'm sorry but all of your patients have them mm-hmm. and it could be really really making or breaking your treatments if we understand mm-hmm. we can be well within our scope of practice but still acknowledge that our patients have minds and emotions Mm. Um, (laughs) not just a bag of mechanics not just (laughs) no but then that got locked down and suddenly everyone's doing cbt and there's nothing wrong with cbt but then suddenly went okay i've ticked the box of you know of the mind that'll be that box um and then you know people got hooked into stability and then they turned that into a bunch of boxes and so all the way along you're kind of running ahead of this And it's great because, you know, it's rolling and you can see. And now at the moment, I think we're in one of the best places we've been. And actually, interestingly, I think COVID has brought some gifts with it for the profession because people are actually acknowledging, heck, you know, emotions are are pretty important here. We're all encountering them. There's more people becoming trauma-informed. There's more people... I mean, goodness, I used to struggle to get clinicians to accept that looking at breathing might be a thing. And always struggled. You know, oh, no, people don't pay me to come and be taught how to breathe. Let me tell you about not just the autonomic effects, but the biomechanical effects and why this is really, really critical. Now, 
people are so lacking a clarity that. there. You're describing a total lack of clarity and understanding of why a person has come to see you as a physiotherapist. Yeah, and I think that hooks us into the sticky area of what our beliefs are mm. about our practice and about ourselves as practitioners and what constitutes, you know, good practice and what what patients are actually coming for. And there's just so much to unpick there. So, for example, the people, I mean, the people who come to our courses all are they all want to do a fantastic job in serving their patients. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So when they were saying, oh, I can't do the breathing, it's not what the patients are expecting, they, they, were, they were trying to speak to, trying to meet their patients' desires and expectations. But when we unpick it, we're like, well, why has the patient come to you? Um, do, they, do they want to feel better? Well, if... One of the reasons that they can't do that, despite all of your marvelous techniques, is that they, let's say very simplistically, mm-hmm. that their stress causes that a certain form of embodiment that perhaps elevates the rib cage at the front, shuts down at the back, means that our abdominal wall then disengages and our, our capacity for intra-abdominal pressure modulation, which we need for spinal stability, is some, suddenly compromised. And if we, if we don't recognize that, we just dial down deeper on more core stability exercises and we just, ah, we just do the right one and enough of them. Then hopefully we'll get the same result. Like we can't get the same result. There is a fundamental element that isn't working. And the only way we can get into that is by addressing, if we want to be mechanical about it, what the diaphragm's doing and how it's relating to the pelvic floor and the abdomen. So if we don't go there, and if we don't explain that, and so people, well, how can I, people say, how can I sell it to the patient? And anybody who knows me knows that I get the twitches every time someone talks about selling something to the patient. So it's like, I'm not selling anything. I'm explaining to them how the inner airbag is an anatomical and physiological gift that we evolved to have to help to create this sense of, of sense of central stability. And, and this is how we get it. And this is why it's not happening at the moment. But we can actually address that and it doesn't have to be complicated. That's very different to selling something to somebody. But also what you're describing is the total disconnection which we often see between really listening and committing to the person in front of you rather than your professional ego which I might sound very harsh saying but quite often it feels listening who are you serving here are you trying to impress your colleagues or are you trying to help the person in front of you Yes, Kate. I think, and again, it's such an interesting area, isn't it? Because ego so frequently is is buried in fear. Mm -hmm. And then the fear can come from the stories that we've learned at college, the the stories that we're seeing played out on social media, the stories about what we believe about ourselves, and that can get wrapped up in ego. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And, you know, sometimes... 
people get confused about like, the concept of humility. I'm very humble. You know, well, well, lack of confidence is not the same thing as humility. Mm. And I think there is, I just, I have this huge sense of compassion for clinicians out there because I totally understand what it feels like to have people level their criticism at you. Mm. I really get that. Mm. And how awful and isolating that feels. Mm. And if there's one thing that has really happened, you know, in the last years through social media is that people have kind of had a voice to criticize others. And sometimes mm-hmm. they they kind of would seem to be donning the cape of the crusade of a clinical practice and clinical standards. But but really what passes for professional discourse was kind of degenerating into kind of this very critical place where people couldn't share ideas openly without someone hammering them give me six randomized control trials to back up what you're saying I'm just like well you know I'm just I'm, what I'm sharing is something I've seen as a trend over a number of years with this kind of patient thought I might bring it up for your interest in some discussion let's play the ball rather than play the person exactly exactly and maybe people agree and maybe they don't but mm. respectful discourse around that has been more and more difficult well i think we've seen the overton window of conversation in all of society not just in clinical practice massively shrink in the last few years in terms of what it is okay to talk about and not okay to talk about and what concepts are allowed to be discussed and what concepts just are not allowed to be discussed oh yeah absolutely and also you know the we've seen but now that we know so much more about how our brains work, we've had now several years of chronic uncertainty. Mm. And, you know, the, the research shows us that it takes three weeks for our limbic system to, to thicken into that, you know, more reactive kind of looping. Uh, three weeks? Well, heck, we've been at this for a lot longer than that. Mm. So we've got activated emotional systems which makes it really hard for our prefrontal cortex to work properly because it can be inhibitory so now we've got a lot of emotion we've got a brain that's not thinking that great um and so what we see and what i'm seeing in clinicians is a a really massively increased drive for certainty so there i'm seeing people really attracted to people who are promoting this is the these are the 10 steps to guaranteed success. These are the, this is the program in this order that you will get this result. People are going, please give me that. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And you know, the irony, Kate, is that the more we get driven into what we perceive to be safe, mm. the more unsafe we become because we're getting further and further from the actual experience of the human we're seeing. So, you know, that little video that I did on the mm. biopsychosocial model that, that had you come in contact with me on mm. saying is that if we accept that human beings are spider webs of you know, constellations of different factors and we, we start to pull at those and we start to learn more and more and more, if we accept that, there's going to be uncertainty. And if we accept that, 
we cannot know all the factors in play in this human being at any point. Mm. That's That seems a bit scary, but actually when we accept that and we go, right, I'm going to make my best informed, you know, I'm going to say guess, it's, you know, it really is. I mean, people won't like for saying that, but I mean, we, we make a very educated uh, guess as to, we form hypotheses, we test those hypotheses, it's great. But if it doesn't hang, we can so often turn that in on ourselves and make it about, I'm not good enough, I don't know enough, I can't help this patient. And if we actually just stop that recording right there, and when all we found out is some information on the basis of what we've just done. Okay, so we've got something. Now we know we're not going to spend any more time trying to make that work. What else is there? What other questions can we ask? So we and come at it from a position of curiosity. Exactly. Takes us out of expert fixer, must know it all mode. Mm-hmm. into something that is actually starting to get more collaborative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked a little bit about you know, patient autonomy. Well, this is where it begins. Yeah. Coming at it from a place of curiosity to determine the nature of the problem and work out a solution from there going forwards mm-hmm. rather than a dictated protocol prescription basis. Absolutely. And and the great thing about that is suddenly, I and mean, we talk about being patient-centered without actually being patient-centered. The more mm-hmm. protocol-driven, the more the patient is not a person. Mm-hmm. You know, the sub their subjectivity is removed. Um, they become the you know, the object, their pain is the subject, mm-hmm. and they're just an object. You know, in mm-hmm. traditional patriarchal medicine, that's mm-hmm. how it goes. But yeah, and that's a danger. There's a danger slipping back to that in terms of actually has the protocol drive just taken us back mm. 50 years to the physio does what the doctor says, just pre- oh. become prescription-based. Oh, my goodness, Kate, yes. Uh, I and, and it's so interesting because it's kind of being slid, it's being slid under under the guise of evidence-based practice. Mm. If we can systematise it all and make it super consistent so that, you know, this is the way everybody does it, then suddenly we can generate data. I'm just like, well, but it's not real. And I'm, I mean, this is not against, you know, I'm not saying, oh, because some somebody will be listening and going, oh, no, she's against evidence-based practice. I'm like, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I'm against is using the term in the service of a behaviour mm-hmm. that takes us further and further from the practice of real medical care. Mm-hmm. And the, I think that well, I think GPs are aware that the relationship with a GP has become very transactional mm-hmm. rather than interactional. And generally, physiotherapists and related professions have a lot more time, and we have that opportunity to be interactional mm-hmm. rather than transactional, which is what most people want. Oh, absolutely. And there's just so much out there in the evidence base, for example, you know, narrative forms uh, of interaction with the patient. There's so much more data that's been generated with that. The, the huge gains when you allow a patient to tell you their story. Mm. 
And that might come with tears. I remember as a junior physio being terrified of anybody crying on me, (laughs) Jan. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. We're not not equipped. We're not not taught that that's okay. How do we just hold space for somebody? That wasn't part of my training. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, we so relate to that. It's so true. And, And it's interesting when you say we have more time because most physiotherapists will say we don't have time. And then when we start to pick apart that, why do you feel you don't have time? And then we get these beliefs about what a good session actually looks like. And it turns out it's a bit like a packed lunch. Well, we do our subjective and we're objective and we do some manual therapy or some exercises and a home program and tick, 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 and that's a good session. And if I don't get through all of that, I haven't done a good job. And, you know, only the other day on a course, one of my, a wonderful practitioner, so hard on themselves, said I'm constantly falling short. Like, what does that mean? Well, I'm not getting everything done that I'd planned. And I was like, but maybe that means you were where the patient actually needed to be today. Maybe they didn't need all that stuff. So maybe you've done an amazing job. That was a really big concept. Mm. And more and more, the theme that's coming through when I'm getting feedback, when our participants come back, what what is coming up for you? Less is more. Over and over again, people saying, I'm learning that less is more. I think two things spring to my mind there. One is if you just watch people in a cafe, how much listening, how little listening actually goes on. You can tell, you don't need to hear the conversation, but when both people's mouths are talking at once, who's listening? And there's you're describing just let people tell their story and then have a curiosity to explore it further absolutely and and have the have the patience not to try and draw a conclusion too quickly Mm -hmm. that's tough for us too because we're kind of taught you need to get to the chase you know do all the right tests and you will have a diagnosis and when you have a diagnosis then you'll know what to do and it's it's kind of what i call the bad fairy tale you know, we're, we're given this fairy tale of that's how it's going to be. And that one day, if you know enough, that this is what's going to happen. The patient will come in, they will present, you will do your evaluation, you will find the, make a diagnosis, you will do the program that goes with it, and the patient will go skipping off over the horizon, having been fixed. And it's a complete fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a denial that we're a living thing. You know, you plant your vegetable patch. Yeah. With a curiosity of what will grow well this year and what won't grow well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, again, I just, I look at all of the stories that clinicians are carrying that they're fighting with without realising and feeling bad about themselves for no reason um, because we're not taught that it's okay to have uncertainty. And we have uncertainty if you give someone the space to tell their story and you both sit and consider that for a moment. I think that's really interesting, you um, bringing that up, because I often feel that there's a danger of clinicians giving up, or I'm talking about physiotherapists, giving up too soon. And if what if you were the only solution available to the person in front of you? Mm-hmm. What if you were the only solution available? 
Mm-hmm. Because I think two, three sessions, well, they've not got better. You refer them back to the GP. The GP doesn't know what to do. You know far better what to do with an MSK problem. You've perhaps just not gone far enough, listened deep enough, given enough time. Yeah. And as you say, Kate, you know, if the result hasn't happened, then either we judge ourselves or we judge the patient. And we end up with this revolving door through the GP. They came from the GP. We don't know what to do after two sessions. They go back to the GP. More prescriptions, eventually after surgery, which they never needed. And then they come back. Whereas if we'd done a better job in the first place. Yeah. And again, I, I think I even hesitate to use the word better. Mm. I, I I just wonder whether it's whether we were able to tolerate the fact that our first approach hasn't been the one this patient needs. Yes. And then we go, okay, I'm going to step back and mm. go, so what do they need? Mm. And again, encouraging clinicians not to feel that they have to carry the full weight of that on their own shoulders. Mm. Because it was funny, I was just you know going over a, an old post that I'd put up, which said that, you know, that someone's nervous system doesn't care about what your agenda is. Mm. You know, the best, the best thing you're going to do today, the best lesson you're going to teach is the one that they bring with them. Mm. And so sometimes I think I haven't even done anything with my clinic day because it seems that um, patients come in, I've asked them some questions, and they've pretty much come up with where we need to go. Yeah, everybody holds the own the answer. Your job, you're almost the detective to help yeah, find it. Absolutely. You, yeah, yeah, that was something I always remember being taught. Well, something that really stuck with me was if you come from the position that each person holds the answer, you're the detective to try and mm. elicit that answer. But they hold it. You've just got to go absolutely. finding it. Absolutely. And again, that comes into this co-creation philosophy you know one of the things we're trying to encourage people is to stop telling people things mm. and start asking what do you notice when you do that i don't know because nobody's ever asked me a question like that before so i'm going to i'm going to tolerate or understand that you haven't ever been asked the most important question which is you know please tell me about your real-time experience of what's happening right now because I can't possibly know. So I'm going to totally respect that you're bringing this huge amount of really important information to the table. And I'm going to help you with that. So I don't know. So how can I be clearer to help you? Mm -hmm. If you put your hand on this part of your body, do you notice that anything changes when you do this? So yes or no, something changes. Brilliant research shows us we reward the discovery not the outcome so we're not rewarding that you did a perfect exercise we're rewarding that you discovered something for yourself so that's part of self-efficacy research and isn't that what we want for our patients and is there a challenge for the younger clinician leaving university now that the game they've been taught to play is a diagnostic game Mm. of find the label the diagnosis that you can Mm. give Mm. this person Mm. and that's where the satisfaction comes and actually that so what the label doesn't actually help them get better 
No, I, I mean, obviously, if you have an acute injury, mm-hmm. and then a, then a clear diagnosis is going to be absolutely mandatory. But the majority of patients that we're seeing don't they don't come with that. They come with you know things that haven't got better or things that came they don't know where they came from, and you know this kind of woolly bit. That was the first question they asked me when I went to work in the NHS in the UK was, what kind of patients do you like to treat? I said, oh, chronic ones. And they went, brilliant. Let's, let's give you those because nobody else wants to treat them because they don't have a clear diagnosis. But mm-hmm. we can start to trace a story of their experience and that's a totally different thing altogether. And as you mm-hmm. say, for the young clinician, to, you know, one of the basic things that we teach is that why is this structure under pressure instead of, okay, there's the painful bit, what's wrong with it? So mm-hmm. we know something's not right, but what does that mean? Yeah. Why is it behaving this way? Yeah. Yeah. The other part that, coming back full, full circle to the start of this conversation, is we talked about that physiotherapists, we are very st- stereotypically here trained as mechanical therapists. And yes, there's a recognition that people do have emotions. <laughs> it's okay to address them. Um, now, we're to varying degrees interested in psychology or not. But either way, it is socially very safe for your patients that have a pain to book in to see a physiotherapist or to ask their PA to book them an appointment to see their physiotherapist or their wife to book them an appointment to see a physiotherapist. It's very, very safe psychologically and socially for them to nip out of work at lunchtime for a physiotherapy appointment. Yep. And in that space, there's all sorts they might want to talk about. And it doesn't mean that they want to talk about emotion, that they need to go and see a psychologist necessarily. No, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, heaven knows. I mean, you know, Barman and hairdressers yeah. <laughs> they've looked at you know the the amazing functions that mm. these kinds of professions have they have no qualifications whatsoever in the psychological mm. fields, but yet fulfill an amazing supportive function mm. um now I'm not suggesting that that's the level at which we're operating, but if we can be you know comfortable enough for someone to express. Mm. what's happening in their lives and even to ask the question what else is going on at the moment that's a that's amazing what that brings um you know this is what's happening okay what what else is happening in life generally at the moment just so i can get a bit of a picture so i'm not presenting it as i'm getting into your head i'm presenting as it's just really helpful for me to get a picture of everything that's going on around you to understand what might be happening in your body. Because you are a whole being, a whole living thing. You have a whole living thing. And I do find that for many patients, it's the first time anybody's actually invited that discussion. Oh, nobody's ever asked me that before, is often what comes. So that in itself often starts them to find their own solutions. Mm. Do you think there's a problem, Joanne, with the distraction that 
infighting between different philosophies within just even the world of physiotherapy, not in the whole world of healthcare, just in the world of physiotherapy mm. creates. And I'm using the word distraction quite specifically because it detracts from the bigger impact that we can be making. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've seen a whole lot of, you know, people kind of get behind one way of, you know, of working and then it's kind of like my way or the highway. Mm. You know, you saw it with, oh, you know, just, you know, just get strong, for example. I'm just like, well, you know, in it may be in the experience of that person and the kinds of people they see that they get certain kinds of results with that and that's fine but it's not recognizing that there may be other things in play and 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 that's only one thing somebody else might be putting all their eggs in a in a different basket Mm. um but there has been a this kind of almost um ring fencing of this 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 is the answer this is the holy grail um at the expense of the bigger picture uh, and as you say, it is a way of coming away from the discomfort of the reality that real human beings are messy and complex. And the, the, the interesting thing is that we can accept that human beings are complex, but what we do with them doesn't have to be complicated. There's a big difference between complex and complicated. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think that powerful simplicity is a way to cut through the noise but to do that we have to accept that there's an interplay to start with and it is a bit messy but it doesn't have to be complicated Mm. we should be prepared to go through that mess with the patient in front of us with the person in front of us yeah and you know if we are transparent about that mm. I you know I, I haven't found a patient responds poorly to that usually you know um certainly I guess some of that is born of my own everyone has their own filters so my filter is that most of the patients I see have had a lot of treatment before and so I get to learn a lot about you know the kinds of interactions they've had and often the focus has been on a painful structure um but so interesting when you do say you I'm it sometimes they're complicated or so so not complicated complex enough that I'll say right this first session I need to get it all down and get the big picture here and from there we're going to make a plan Mm. is that okay with you and patients are usually quite relieved about that and if I can come out of oh they expect this and they expect that and like well I can do that but I may not be getting to the bottom of things. So I'm going to actually hear your story and I'm going to explore things, you and me together. We're going to explore some things. You know, for me, obviously, I tend to do things a lot through, you know, how are you embodying yourself, what's happening in your movement, your posture, how is that affecting things? And that often engages them in the process because that's actually a learning situation for them. So they're not going away with nothing. Mm. but they are going away feeling heard. And for many people, that's where the magic is. It's like, wow, someone really got me today. 
And I'm really looking forward to going back and seeing where that goes. And the majority of people that come through your door do not know what all the certificates are and all the letters are on, on the wall. What they just know is they want to be able to do the gardening, pick up the grandkids. Yeah. Live their life better than they are now. Absolutely. I mean, it's your preconception. The danger is it's your preconception of what they're expecting that's mm. misaligned and therefore there becomes this lack of congruence. That's the trick is the mind reading, isn't it? You know, we're predicting what that patient's going to think. Now, you know, for some people, you know, quite possibly seeing lots of certificates on the wall will feel reassuring. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I am not saying that that won't have an effect for some people mm-hmm. um, of giving them a sense of, okay, well, I'm, I'm in the presence of an expert and I can relax because that's the case. They're out of luck in my clinic because I just have art on the wall, so I don't have anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but overall, yes, what do people really want? Do they want 10 minutes of manual therapy, 10 minutes of exercise therapy, um, and you know, or do they want, as you say, to feel better, mm-hmm. or uh, at least to feel some sense of understanding of the situation, mm-hmm. which can give you maybe a slightly better sense of control. Yeah, which in itself can have an effect on the pain experience. Joe, can you summarise this conversation in a sentence or two? Oh, boy, Kate, that's a uh, A tricky one. Okay. Human beings are beautiful, messy, extraordinary constellations of so many factors which makes us what we are. If we can accept that as clinicians and that wherever we start is a fair start point but we don't have to become attached to it. If we can remember to tell less and ask more. If we can hold that space to allow emotions to come and know that that's okay. And if we can be kinder and less judgmental of ourselves, then the process can continue to unfold in a forward direction with you and the patient collaborating in that process. Wonderful. Thank you very much, John. Well, you're so welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, visit www.marchlandmethod.com forward slash grow. There you'll find access to the free Profit Without Pills program. You'll also have opportunity to register for the free web class, the triage call, and you'll be able to sign up for the weekly email newsletter where you get hints and tips on how to create a profitable and sustainable practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can get access to influential people and speakers and bring them here so that they can share their lessons with you.